expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between, it's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Hey, you found us. It's episode 131 of the Down and Nerdy podcast where, you know, Nick, we hear people complain all the time that stores put Christmas decorations out way too early. But guess what? Nerds talk about Easter eggs all the time. Well, also, I mean, with the success of Stranger Things, why not put the Christmas lights out early? I mean, it's a good way to communicate with your friends and the upside down. I mean, it just makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just, it makes coming home for the holidays and connect during the holidays a lot easier. That's right. Feeling festive, I'm James Witham alongside. The cr- ugly Christmas sweater wearing, Merc with one arm, Nick Pataglia. At least there's less of your sweater than there would be most people's. I have to, like, pin my sleeve to the top of my shoulder so it doesn't <laughs> droop. But you get that extra warmth on that one side <laughs> of your body. Right? <laughs> I look like from The Simpsons, that military guy who's got the, the sleeve <laughs> built up. You know, pinned to the Aww. top. <laughs> <laughs> what does Christmas mean to you, boys and girls? <laughs> I can hear my wife now. It's not even Halloween yet. Shut up about Christmas. Yeah, I know your wife's a big Halloween fan. So, I mean, but I mean, last week was pretty fun, dude. It was a really, really uh, fun time. To, of course, which we traveled to Harlem and talked Luke Cage with Simone Missick. Yeah, we did, man. And, of course, the show, as you're hearing this, the show's out now. So, hey, thanks for taking a couple minutes to listen to us before you binge the rest of Luke Cage. But, man, it's just it's just Netflix getting it right again, you know, every time. That's just, this is what they do. Well, yeah, and, I mean, remember we talked about this last week about how Netflix wants to make 50% of their programming now original content. And again, we talked about, you know, with the success of the Marvel stuff and Luke Cage and some other things as well, it makes sense. And a lot of people I know back in the day were like, well, you know, I want, I still want my movies and stuff like that. You know, I want my big time movies and, and shows and whatever. You'll still get those. But again, why, if, if your original content is this good, why stop making it? Yeah, if you're doing this well, I don't know why you would stop. Just like, I mean, hey, if you're Drew Powell on Gotham, why would you stop wanting to play Butch? I mean, we got to talk to him as well. I know, man. Drew was such a great, great guy to talk to. He was just so much fun. I mean, that scene with the rocket launcher, and he's just like, I can't feel my face. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know yeah. how it's going to look. And it's like, it's one of those things, man, when you I've, I've filmed stuff in the cold before, and it's not easy. I remember one time I was in a, a short film and i had to play a, a club goer and it was no lie middle of january so it was about 20 degrees out and i had a dress as if it were summer so I, had, I was standing outside in the back of this restaurant where we we're filming in a polo shirt and jeans yes but did you use pieces of plum to fling pieces of galavan around after the fact no i did not yeah, see that apparently that's the key to everything. If if we ever shoot anything like that, we're gonna have to use plums because according to Drew, that's just what you do. Right. <laughs> so now that's what the inside of my right arm looks like. It's all plums on the there inside. There you go. <laughs> no wonder I saw you chewing on it the other day. Oh yes. <laughs> But uh, this week's going to be a fun week, of course. We have the showrunners and creators of NBC's Timeless coming on this week, James. I mean, Eric Kripke and Sean Ryan have created something here, guys. And you're going to love seeing this show when it comes out on Monday. But now you get to hear about 
the show before you even see it, and they're going to give us some pretty good insights, actually. Yeah, man, I can't wait to talk to those guys about the new show. Again, it going back in time and just talking about, you know, all these events that happen and all these historical events visiting. It's going to be a pretty interesting show. We actually got a first look at it as well. Uh, a little bit of a screener beforehand, so that was really fun. It's a show you guys see. But coming up next, we're going to dive into our weekly polls because we're going to be discussing two new comics this week. Of course, what we're reading is coming up next. Hi, I'm Simone Mythic from Marvel's Luke Cage, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's time we pull out our long boxes and we discuss what we're reading this week. And James, last week, of course, I reviewed ROM Revolution number one from IAW. So I think it's only fair that if you get us starting this week and keep the revolution going. That's right. We're going to keep going with the Mobile Armored Strike Command. That's right. Mask is finally here from IDW. So it's Mask Revolution. This one's written by Brandon Easton. Tony Vargas on the art. Colors by Jordy Eskune and letters by... Chris Mori. I think I should get a crisp high five every time I get all the names right, too, by the way. No, I'm off gold stars. Ah, we'll, we'll put that in the budget. for. Would you, we'll would, you set, budget. would you settle for an attaboy? Sure. Okay. Yay. Attaboy. <laughs> My life has validation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of what the mask team members are actually kind of looking for in this first issue, ironically enough, because... We start out present day where they're kind of mobilizing, you know, where they're going. And, of course, we've got Miles Mayhem Mannheim right there, and he's he's kind of leading the way. But we don't really know what's going on yet. And then we flash back to when the team is formed. And that's basically what this first issue is. It's really a, a lot of a zero issue. So if you don't really know a whole lot about Mask, good thing about this is, is that this will teach you a lot. But it also teach you how crazy demented and twisted miles mayhem really is dude because some of the stuff that he makes them do and i guess to a degree i mean when you're vetting a team that's going to be a special forces off the books type of team you need to do certain things but some of the stuff this guy does man it's really out there i don't want to spoil any of it but man does he let me guess he puts a couple of them in the hole and tells them to rub the lotion on its skin uh, well, there's no hoses involved. I can tell you that much right now, but it, it's more mental too. It's a lot of it's not even physical. A lot of it's mental. So it's almost like, okay, I'm going to show you how to use your mask, but then, you know, something's going to, there, there could, there's a chance that something could happen. Uh, hopefully you can handle it. And then just what he does to this team mentally, there's actually something that happens in the middle of the issue that changes the vibe on the team and mayhem's reaction to it kind of, Half the team members say think his reaction's fine. The other team half is like, "What are you talking about? This is awful." So the way he vets the team out, and then of course you're you're focused on Tracker, who you know is the leader of the team. If you're a Mask fan, so you're focused on him, and you really see how kind of shaky he is in the beginning a little bit. So how's the art in this? The art's really good. I mean, it, it, ironically enough, I mean Fico is the gold standard, I think, of Revolution art, but. This is pretty close. I mean, I think that that, that uh, Vargas does a pretty good job of trying to capture and be consistent with everything else in Revolution, and I think that IDW's actually done a pretty good job with that anyway, of keeping things pretty standard. But there's something that happens in the end of the training session mm-hmm. that is an oh-my-God moment for sure, and then you have another oh-my-God moment when you find out more about it a couple of pages later. <laughs> so Mayhem teaches them, 
Now you put this mask on, but something dangerous might happen or something you might not like will happen when you put this mask on. It'll just like farts blasting in her face and stuff like that. Yeah, that, I mean, either that or reruns of Captain Planet. I mean, there's so many different oh, things yes. that can go wrong. But of course, the end, I'll say the end is predictable, but it's not right. bad predictable. It's just because it's a revolution book, you kind of expect. And if you read the zero issue of revolution, you'd expect that this is how they're going to kick it off. There's something that you mentioned. I mean, we talk about the mental, you talked about the mental aspect of this. And this is something I want to talk about when it comes to revolution as a whole. Uh, I've read the Micronauts Revolution and stuff like that. I've read pretty much all the revolution books so far that are out right now. And I like the fact that everything is coming from a mental viewpoint. We're not really getting a whole lot of physical torture or just physical pain in a sense. We're seeing a very mental image. For example, we're seeing the Joe's mental image and outtake and, and, and pretty much what they think of the Transformers and vice versa. And now with Mask, we're seeing kind of like how they think. I love it when they're doing when, – when publishers do books that are very cerebral and it causes you to think and it actually opens your eyes. I think honestly – a, a pan, you know a few panels where you're seeing the mind of a person really captures I think a story better and I think grabs your attention more than having a giant panel of explosions and crazy shit right which which they have in revolution as well but I mean remember how much we talked about how great uh, book of death was from Valiant right. and how they they did so well of melding everyone together and it's a great crossover to me. I think Revolution so far from what we've read in the main run of the tie-ins is, is stepped that up big time. And this is like, to me, it's like the gold standard of crossover events. They've done so well with such a vast amount of characters and such a vast amount of properties that people loved. And the way that they're melding it together and the pictures they're painting of, of Rom and of, and of Miles Mayhem with Mask and all the way they're, picturing, they're painting the picture of each character set – I think it's great. So, I mean, to me, hey, yet another pull. You got to go out and buy this book. Uh, before we move on to my book, one quick question. Without spoiling anything, do we see in Mask, do we, just so that way the fans know, do we see somebody from the other Revolution books make an appearance, yes or no? Yes. Yes. And And yes, you do see the vehicles. Yes, you do get to see them use their mask powers a little bit. Yes, they do kind of explain what's going on there. So again, even if you're not a mask, diehard mask fan, you're going to get little explanations here and there. So you definitely won't be lost if you're not a fan. You're going to be a fan once you read this, though. Well, something that I'm pretty much a fan of right now, of course, we all love DC Comics, but we also love the imprint that is Vertigo Comics, and Vertigo's got a new book out, new series called Frostbite. Of course, it's written by Joshua Williamson, who also does The Flash. And it's also the art is done by Jason Sean Alexander, and the colors are done by Louis NCT. The lettering is done by Steve Wands. Now, there isn't a real time frame as to when this takes place. It just starts off, it's set in Los Angeles, 57 years into what's being called the New Ice Age. Okay. And something has happened, and you do find out what that is towards the third act of the book, the last final couple pages, you find out how this Ice Age, the second coming of the Ice Age, happened. And pretty much what is this is, is it takes place in a couple of places. Los Angeles is one, and then Mexico City is another one. And you have these people who, you know, again, second Ice Age, it's a struggling story. You know, there's not a lot of power. People are, you know, using credits to get heat and stuff like that. Heat is a commodity. 
And you come up with this person named Keaton who is kind of this, not really a smuggler, but somebody who is a transporter, I'll say. And there are a few people in this book that come across her and say, hey, we need to get to Alcatraz for such and such a reason. And again, you do find out the reason why. And when you find out that reason, you are really taken in by it and you were really kind of shocked by it and it really is a really nice reveal but the way that Williamson crafts the writing in this is that this is races against the clock meets a lot of tension and it's not like we have x amount of hours before somebody dies no it's you know, the book's called Frostbite for a reason because there's a frostbite epidemic. Right. And so it's kind of like we need to get to this place before one of us captures frostbite. And so because these people are in 12-degree weather, they're in, like, you know, freezing temperatures. And, again, Keaton does something in this book to when you read it, you're going to be like, Oh man, and it's gonna be so, and it's something that's gonna set up future issues to where when this thing comes out to the public and to her group especially, a lot of tension is gonna be raised. For example, and to to, to use a reference, think of last season's finale of Blind Spot. Put that in the comic book. Oh, I like that. I like that. Now, speaking of visuals, though. Yes. We remember how great Empty Zone was when we interviewed Jason Sean, Jason Sean Alexander right. last year. How's the art in this? The art in this is very – it's really good, actually. It's not detailed, but what I want to say is it's kind of weathered in a sense and kind of pastel – not pastel, but kind of – you know, flat a little bit, but in a good way. Because, so it makes sense with the setting is what you're saying. Right, because, you know, the, the, the colors aren't very bright. Uh, they're very toned down, kind of fleshed out a little bit. You know, people are wearing jackets. It's the wintertime. You know, it's a new ice age. So just reading this, you do get that wintry vibe. There's a lot of white. There's a lot of good differentiation between, like, whites and kind of, like, steel color. Okay, okay. So... It's really, really good, and also it's to the point where it's not flat to the point where you can't make out layers of clothing. You can't make out things. You can make out details beautifully. Um, again, the the art by Jason Sean Alexander is great. The colors, you know, are by Lewis NCT are are fantastic. Because the thing is, is when you go from night to day in this book, which it does, it starts out at night in Los Angeles and makes its way towards daytime. It's beautiful. Like you can see that transition. It doesn't feel like you're standing in one spot, you know, or, or you're in one time zone. It's really, uh, really good. I mean, even when you see like the vehicles, these are like the vehicles in this are really like ATV, extreme ATV snowmobiles per se, okay. or cars kind of thing. Picture like a dune buggy. Picture, okay, you know what? Actually, picture um, the Dark Knight series where Batman drove for the Batmobile, the Tumbler. That's kind of what people drive in this. They drive oh, okay. And the t- I mean, you get the details in that first page of a, what this Tumblr S thing looks like. You can see the details, even though it's a, a far away shot. You can see the details on the tires. Yeah, I'm looking at the art right now. I see exactly what you're saying. 
Yeah, and it's, exactly it's, it's amazing. But again, the writing on this is strong. The action that Keaton does in the end is really going to test the, not patience, but it's going to test the trust of this. Because this is the thing is that, you know, it's it, this whole thing, even before what she does in the book, later in half, there's still that issue of trust as to who can you trust and stuff like that. Because let's just say these other people, this this gang, if you will, is trying to capture this person that she's transferring or these people she's transporting for a certain reason. It's kind of similar, uh, but it's more of a, a selfish reason. But I, I mean, this frostbite is a definite pull for me, man. I love this book. This is something that, again, it's going to grab you immediately when you pick it up. I was really looking forward to this when I found out that it was announced. And part of that was because of how fantastic Williamson's been on the flash so far and the emotion that he's been able to bring into that and the action. And then, you know, when we talked to Jason, Sean Alexander, as talented as that dude is, I'm like, you put these guys together. Are you kidding me? Right. I saw that at Comic-Con. I'm like, I'm all in for this. And let me just say that there is a scene where you do see somebody with frostbite and the way that the frostbite is portrayed is really awesome. Like, it gives you, like, in a sense, Iceman X-Men vibes. I thought you were going to say it gives you the chills, and I was no, I was so that, ready for that. I, no, I will not pick at that low-hanging fruit, sir. I am better than that. My will is strong, and I can resist the temptation. <laughs> just don't lick the stop sign. I just, I won't. I, I won't. I'm really missing an arm. I don't need to miss my tongue. That would be, yeah, that would be bad. Plus, not being able to do a show anymore would kind of suck. Yeah, that wouldn't be good. Thank you, and do it. We're coming out the light of being on the den of the podcast. I'm holding my tongue, by the way. This is not any, you know, that's what I'm doing. Let's enjoy the light of being. Come up next. It's Geek Tame on Down Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Alex Irvine, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, for this week in Geek Tame, we're going to stay in the TV realm for fall TV because we have a couple of brand new shows on sci-fi that people have been anticipating. So we're going to do two of those shows this week. Nick, let's start with a show that we were kind of intrigued by when we were going into San Diego Comic-Con. That was Van Helsing. Yeah, of course, Van Helsing on sci-fi. And here's the thing about Van Helsing. Of course, you have Spoilers, vampires. by the way. Spoilers, yes, by the way. Spoilers, by the way. We do want to say that. When you think of Van Helsing, you think monsters, mostly vampires and stuff like that. This is a problem that I have, and this show is definitely one of those problems, has one, has this problem. In horror and survivor-esque TV shows, a big problem is you have these survivors, a group of survivors or a survivor, who selfishly and rather stupidly does something to jeopardize everybody else for selfish reasons. And listen, I understand it's the apocalypse. I understand shit is going down. But I hate it when shows and movies create survivors and give them zero common sense, as the survivors in here don't have. And plus, they made them totally unlikable. Yeah, that was the other problem for me. I mean, I can't think of one character... Outside of maybe some flashes from uh, Kelly Overton, who plays the Van Helsing character, Vanessa, uh, that were likable at all. Like, we were talking off the air about there's a scene where, again, spoilers, because this is a review of the first episode, where 
you see a woman, she gets infected with the vampire disease, whatever the hell they were calling it. And, you know, one of her friends decides, okay, I have to kill her and beats her to death with a fire extinguisher. But, and maybe this sounds cold, but as she's beating her up, I'm going, don't care. I, yeah, beat, yeah, kill her. <laughs> and, and, well, that was a problem for me. Like, I felt emotionally detached from that because there was no background given on these characters where you should care about them. There was no background so, given on anything. Pretty much. At all. And so, and so when she's, you know, bashing her head in with the fire extinguisher, she's going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's like, uh, th- there's, I know I'm supposed to feel something here, but I feel nothing because I have no soul, apparently. <laughs> well, no, it's not even that because, like, they're, they're, they talk about this doctor, and they don't right. give you any information on the doctor. We get that she's infected, and, and this dude's kind of keeping her alive in a very even strange that. way. Yeah, even I, that's really dumb because it's like, it's yeah. like, why are you keeping her alive? Because, oh, see if we can get her back to normal or whatever. So, and then now I bet you what's going to happen is this is a big spoiler. We find out that whoever bites Van Hel- Vanessa Helsing turns into a human. We don't know why, but it just happens. And so it's like, okay, we're going to have the doctor bite her and then she's going to come normal well, again. And I, think it's help. Her, I think it's her blood because remember they used the tube to feed her right. kind of thing. So I guess they would do the same thing or at least try and convince her to do my, the same thing. Right. And my thing is this is, is everything about this show was telegraphed. Uh, there were a couple of psych of psych outs for a little bit here and there. But when you first see Vanessa on the table, I immediately said, there's going to be something about her. She's going to be some sort of like miracle thing where she's going to be like the cure or whatever. And lo and behold, I was right about that. Well, here's the problem, though. She was on the table for the first, what, 45 minutes of the episode or or 30 minutes? She was on the table most of the time. Right. This is your main character. Right. And that's the problem. There was just no background given for any of these characters. And like I said, quite frankly, you know, you have, uh, you know, Axel Miller, who was this Marine and he has everything, bar- his hotel, bar- or it's not his hotel, but hospital barricaded and booby trapped and everything else. And then when, he, when you have these survivors say, open the door, I'm like, no, don't open the fucking door. Like, fuck you, you're dead. You know, and that's the thing is that and the reason why I, I might sound cold for saying that, but it's true because every time you watch a survivor slash horror TV show or movie, Whenever a stranger gets let in, they always do something so dumb right, to or, fuck everything yeah, up. There's always one person that's going to make that huge mistake. And not only that, here's one of the things, the other things that bug me too about the whole don't open the door thing, don't let anybody out. I get that, but his whole his whole basis for that was I'm fu- these were my orders. And I'm like, have you looked outside? Whose orders do you think you're following? You've been, again, spoiler alert, the guy's been there for three years and basically hasn't had contact with anybody until recently. So whose orders do you think you're following here? Well, not so just, who cares if you let her out? And the line that cancels that whole orders thing out is when he's talking to the other guy, the other Marine. He's like, your mission's over. I'm like, so then why'd you order him to open the fucking door? Like, yeah, exactly. what the hell? So what, what you're having here is you're having a bunch of times in the show where it's contradicting itself or it's right. not sure if it wants to take a right turn or a left turn. And it seems like there were a lot of left turns and not in a good way. And again, all those turns were all predictable things from what's going on with Vanessa to just everything. And I think that if, you know, this whole... Thing. I think it would have been better if it was just Axel and Vanessa and then, like, them encountering something. Or or would have been even more interesting 
And, you know, when I first saw this, when I first saw the first few scenes, I'm like, cool, this is going to be a bottle show. Yeah, like, yeah. Da- like, like Dawn of the Dead, the remake of Dawn of the Dead that Zack Snyder did, where they're all in that mall and they have to survive. So I'm like, cool, they're in this hospital, and it's going to be a survival thing. Apparently not, from what it looks to be, because she has a kid. She's like, I want to go find my kid. And I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. Well, I want to know how you feel about kids, anybody that's listened to this show. It's, oh, no, kids it's on just, television, I should say. It's just the, No, it's just the fact that... When it's the apocalypse, my main gripe is I want characters who have common sense of they know what they can and cannot control. And we don't get that with this. And that's a big problem with, my, with me. Right. Here's the, here's the bottom line, man, about this show. They laid zero foundation for anything on right. the show. There was no backstory on anybody. Even the characters don't even know where they came from. And they so admit ca- that on the show. Right. So it's like, okay – you have to – in any show – we've reviewed so many things on this show. Now, you and I have watched a lot of television and a lot of movies and you've studied film. And the one thing you have to do is give me something in the first episode, some sort of background or or at least some reason to care about these characters. We got neither in this show. Right. And I mean nothing really grabbed me in this and I think we should just give our, our ratings on this. So if you want to go first, feel free. I mean I don't think any more needs to be said about what we thought of the show. So I'll just go ahead and get my rating. I'm going to give this uh, three bites out of ten. I can't, I can't go on. As much as I thought Kelly Overton did do a good job as Vanessa, if she didn't spend half the show on the table, maybe I'd feel differently because I thought that she, she at least played her role well. Uh, everybody else not so much. I'm done. For me, again, there's a lot of problems with this show. There's not, there, was, there wasn't anything in this where I'm like, it stuck out to me. Like, okay, that's interesting. Because, again, everything was telegraphed. I've seen this over and over again. I've seen scenarios. Like I said, when I can sit there in the beginning, in the first five minutes of a show and say, this is what's going to happen, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and pretty much damn near everything happens, that, that sucks. It's not good writing. It's lazy writing. It's just paint-by-numbers survival horror and that's what it is with this i'm giving this two out of ten knives to the hand that seems fair that seems fair i mean i don't think it's going to heal itself though that's the only problem no it's not it's going <laughs> to lie there bleeding to death so but, moving on i mean that we've got another show that that uh, debuted on sci-fi this past week as well and that was aftermath which is another kind of post-apocalyptic thing and i did not like this at all either because the thing is is this is a show i will say unlike van helsing this is a show that actually does have some potential, not a lot, but some potential. But with the first episode, there's so many different ways that they're trying to go with this, from demons that can possess your body to there's a fever to this whole family aspect of the thing, of the show, to the end of the world. So you have like all these different webs, and it just doesn't know what it wants to do. And plus, it's just between the acting and just the writing aspect and just the pace of it and just the the tone of it and what people are saying in it it needs to calm the hell down like i I totally agree it literally like the script needs to take some riddle in and just calm the fuck down it's almost the exact opposite of van helsing where van helsing gave us nothing aftermath gave us way too much and i'll say this one one thing i did like in the beginning when i was first watching this i was getting about five to ten minutes in i'm like Oh, they're starting off with it's more likely the end of the world. So, like, you know, people are, you know, it's not like we're waiting for this event to happen. But then there lies another problem is that the family, like everybody in the show, whenever they see like 
meteors falling from the sky or whatever, or a demon grabbing their daughter and flying up in the air. They're like the next scene. They're totally cool with everything. Yeah, that was my exactly. That was going to be what I was going to say was my biggest problem with the show. These are not normal reactions. You no. shouldn't just be cool around a campfire after your daughter, sister, you know, whoever just gets snatched by some somehow flying demon person right. and right. Dra- and dragged off to God knows where. And you don't know that she's alive. I mean, of course, you want to think that she's alive, but you don't really know because, by the way, there's no cell service or anything like that. Uh, you know, just typical post-apocalypse. There's, there's no power. And even when, like, another scene that was supposed to be shocking where they're basically – one some guy's cleaning their windshield of their RV with another dude's head. Yeah, and, and I mean the daughter freak. One of the other daughters freaks out, but everybody else is like, "Hey, you stop that!" Yeah, really? You stop, yeah, you stop rubbing that severed head against my windshield, Mister. I'm gonna not pay for gas, which they didn't do it yet. And but but, but like when when they pull up to that gas station, that guy's there. I'm like, dude, you should again. It's the people who don't have any common sense. When it's, you know, this whole apocalypse thing is happening, it's everybody for themselves. It's, right. it's survival of the fittest. Right. But yet you don't have an idea of this guy. It seems there's nobody at this gas station, first of all. It's a, it looks to be abandoned except for the guy that owns it. And he seems off. I mean, he's very off. There's appearance of the way he talks. Yeah. And yet nothing strikes you. You still tell him, hey, put some gas in it. It's like, no, man. Like. Well, like, not only that, but the the dad has no backbone on the show at all. Oh no, he's a fucking pussy. He has no backbone on the show at all. And and Anne Hayes, who's the who's the uh, who's the wife on the show, she has backbone, but it's very. She just seems very unsympathetic to yeah. anything on the show. Right. And and I get that you know maybe she's supposed to be the rock of the family. She's supposed to be. The powerhouse, and I have no problem with that if they want to put her in that role. The, but the way the way that it seemed like they did it was they they did talk about it. it's like she was Air Force, she was military, so she's the hard one. Dad was more of like I'm gonna study you know religion and you know archaeology Wait, and, and peaceful because, stuff. Yeah, I'm not which talking about traditional roles or anything. No, no, no but, but but when we're talking about just how they act, how they interact with each other. The, the dad is more of like, like the mom is more of like, get the gun and shoot the thing. Dad's more like, hey, Tiger, let's talk about your feelings. Well, but she was also kind of prickish towards her own family, though. Oh, she was. That was the thing that, was the thing that got me. And even in a time where one of their daughters is missing, you know, she's kind of being prickish. And I'm like, OK, wait a minute. Are you the rock or are you the bitch? I can't really decide, <laughs> you know. And then the son is a, the son was a total throwaway character for me. Yeah, complete he, total throwaway character. Complete throwaway character. There's no reason for him to be in there. Uh, the daughter had a re- the two daughters had a reason because they're twins. So you have that kind of connection, you know, that fraternal connection, if you will. And the thing is with this show, again, it's just just from everything that happens, everybody's just totally cool. Like I said, they, when it's, you know the guy rubbing another severed head on the windshield to this demon just took off with our daughter, and the next scene, hey, we should fill up for gas. It's like. Yeah. What? Like, yeah. like, like you're totally like cool. Like it never happened. It's like it's kind of like it happens every day. Up, oh, it, oh, it took our daughter. Don't worry, she'll be back. Now, you know I will what? say that there, if there's a bright spot in the show, it's the other sister who's played by Taylor Hickson, and I actually think that after she gets taken and she's right. kind of doing the on her own thing, her story was the one I wanted to see more than anything else. Now, granted, it was, again, it was pretty frantic. There was so much stuff that was happening to her, but you could actually see depth 
in her character and she was having normal reactions and she had an actual storyline that was being followed that you're going, huh, this is really interesting. And then you go back to the other family and it's like, it's like, you know, in the Godzilla movie, when you turned away from Godzilla, when you want to see Godzilla and you're seeing the people and saying, you're like, no, I want to see this. I wanted to see more of her story. Well, even well with her, though, there were some problems I did have with her. Again, it goes back to my whole thing of survivor horror, no common sense. She gets into a cop car, yet you see that the trunk is open. You can see it from any angle that the trunk is open and that an arm is sticking out of the trunk. Yet she's totally cool with getting in the car from these these two cops, even though she knows one of them. But he's taken over, so he doesn't know who she is because he's possessed by a demon. And it's like, um, you should have some sort of, you but know, thing here. To play devil's advocate, they do establish right in the beginning of the show she's not the brightest bulb in the box. But again, it's it's not hard to see an arm hanging out of a trunk. You don't need but, to you don't need to be a, a, a doc have a doctorate degree true, to understand that. True, but she also is getting smarter. She also got smarter as the show went on. So yeah. there there is something to be said for that. I'm just saying, if there's a saving grace here, she's it. She actually makes the show interesting. And I mean, then you see like again the the these meteors and stuff like that hit the earth at the end, and it's just. Again, it's like one of those things where it's like, they're going to get together and they're going to reunite. And then this thing happens and now they're not together. And is she alive? Is she not? And, you know, here's the thing is we talk about the whole cell phone service and everything else like that. It's the, it's non-existent, but it's still there. It comes in and out. Yeah, so it comes like, and goes. So it's like so, Sprint. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Or, or AT&T. Drop calls everywhere. But, I mean... No, it's just one of those things where I watch the show, and it's, like I said, there's some small potential in there, but I don't think the show, I don't think the show can get past a season, let alone two seasons. They have to, they have to find a focus. the The biggest problem is what you said earlier is that there's too much going on. It's like it's like they binge watched everything that they could that was post-apocalyptic and Walking Dead like, and tried to throw it all into one show in one episode. Just Calm down. In the words of Aaron Rodgers, R-E-L-A-X, relax. Pick <laughs> yeah. a lane, stay in it for a while, but not just see that. if it works. And I like that you actually mentioned The Walking Dead because they're actually called skinwalkers in this, the demons are. So I'm like, yeah. really? Are you fucking kidding me? But again, it's it's the whole thing of there's too much going on. There's meteors. There's a fever. There's demons. There's there's walker people. I mean, it's like okay, I, I get that maybe there's supposed to be a look at how many obstacles they have to overcome. But to me, it would have been better if they would have gradually brought different obstacles along instead of throwing it into one episode. Like you know, the first few episodes of the season, you find out about the skinwalkers, but then, you know, come like episode four or five, here come the meteors kind of thing. So here's another thing that's going on to me. That would have been better. It's okay. It's the exact opposite shows where they didn't give you anything in Van Helsing. They give you way too much in the beginning for aftermath. Skinwalker sounds like a term that a masseuse would be called. Like, you'd be calling them a masseuse. Like, gives you, like, the foot massages or whatever like that. <laughs> they walk on your back. <laughs> the, like, yeah, the, the ones that actually walk on your back and play right. that soothing, plinky-plunky music in the background. Right. They, they play Yanni <laughs> in the background and say, go to a deep place. Go to your happy place. And, <laughs> and, 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 
Am Are you I playing a pan flute right now while you're standing on me? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> there better not be a cobra that comes out of that basket. I can tell you that right now. What? Wait. Why? Why? I just looked at you like two seconds ago. Now you have Yanni's mustache growing on your face. What the hell? <laughs> no, I will but, not buy the soap that you made yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, let's give our ratings for this, man. I'll go first for this. Again, it, there's small potential in this. I'm not interested in watching any more of this. I'm giving this three out of ten flyaway demons. See, I've got to go a little bit higher because I think, like you said, this one does have a little bit of potential. And even though there are major chemistry problems with some of the characters on this show, and you're right, there isn't a lot of common sense, I I see glimmers of hope in this show. And at least they seem to have a premise, Mm -hmm. but I don't think they know what it is yet. And I will give them another episode to try and sell me on that premise. So I'm going to give this five fallen Subaru hatchbacks out of town. <laughs> yeah. But that's going to do it for a review of a couple of sci-fi shows. Of course, Van Helsing and Aftermath. But coming up next is Nerd News. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy is coming up next. Hi, my name is Emily Andrus. I'm the showrunner and executive producer of Wine on Earth TV series. And you are listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Well, James, it's time we go around the interwebs and see what's trending. But instead of yelling nerd news this week, you know, we are undercover right now. And we are going to go undercover in terms of some numbers, in terms of television right now. So we're just going to whisper nerd news, okay? Right, let's do it. Let's do it. Nerd news. Wow, that, that sounds, was creepy. That was creepy. <laughs> it's, it's like Gollum saying, come into my house. Wow. It's like that, that was just, that was more creepier than Gollum showing up in a unmarked van g- giving kids candy. I'll have cookies. Cookies. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have the dum-dums. They're the precious. <laughs> Smeagol have his own line of candy now. <laughs> <laughs> Smeagol gonna not touch you hard. Smeagol just wants to show you a cool thing inside his fan. <laughs> Instead of a mattress, it's a rock. <laughs> <laughs> that he knocks the kids unconscious with. <laughs> that took a dark, much like Smeagol, that took a dark turn. <laughs> yes, and Smeagol's gonna go right into the hobbit hole. Oh. But speaking of numbers, getting this train back on track. We're going to discuss Blind Spot. Now, of course, we we had Audrey Spars on a couple weeks ago and talked about the series season two premiere of Blind Spot. We actually reviewed the season two premiere of Blind Spot. But guess what? It turns out our buddy Martin Giro and our friend Audrey have a real big hit on their hands in terms of people that are really in our demographic. Yeah, and I mean, if we're being honest here, the, the, the second season is always the toughest one. And yeah, NBC released a press release basically talking about their premiere week numbers for a bunch of their shows. And if you look in the middle of the press release, they talk about Blindspot a little bit, and they had an 86% increase in Live Plus 3 in 18 to 49. Now, Live Plus 3, for anybody that doesn't know, is Live Viewing Plus three days after, so they factor in the DVR thing as well. And Nick, that's the biggest gain on Premier Week of the Big Four today. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at 
the total amount of viewers. Now, CBS did beat them in total viewers with 11.2 to NBC's 8.7. But when it comes to viewership, when it comes to ratings, demographics are really what's key. Now, CBS, of course, as we joked earlier when we were talking about Supergirl weeks and months ago, you know, it's the old person network and old people have their TVs on longer because they're just sitting at home waiting to die. So, I mean, of course, you're just going to watch CBS. But NBC, you know, you have Blindspot on there. And people are probably wondering why you talk about Blindspot all the time. Well, it's pretty much it's a puzzle show. Yeah. You have tattoos. You have entry. You have mystery. It's not just a procedural. It's, again, it's puzzle solving. It's There's a bits of, of comedy and humor in it. And, you know, it's just, it's really a fascinating show, so that's why it's deemed nerdy nerdy to us. Yeah, exactly, and this was Blindspot's most watched episode of the press release since March 14th, and it actually retained 100% of the finale's audience as well. That's really important. That means pretty much everybody that saw the finale wanted to come back and watch the premiere for season two. And of course, who wouldn't the way it ended? It was a fantastic ending. So these are, this is all a really, really good sign for Blindspot. And NBC is, you know, they're slowly getting hits on their hands. It started, it kind of started with a blacklist. It was kind of like mm-hmm. the return of NBC. Drama. Now here's, and now you've got Blindspot, which seems to be doing the exact same thing for them. Now here's a question I want to revisit. We revisited this a couple of weeks ago. Arrow premieres next week. So, it's on yeah. a Wednesday. Yeah. Blindspot got moved to a Wednesday. If you're Arrow, are you shaking in your boots right now? I am. I really am, especially since, let's let's face it, we're not the only ones that said, you know, Arrow took a little bit of a step back last year. I mean, there were a lot of good things about Arrow last year, but as a whole, it just didn't live up to its previous season. So Arrow's got a lot to prove coming into season five, and they've got their 100th episode coming up as well. So, I mean, I've been seeing a lot of stuff on social media about Arrow. They're kind of sharing, you know, Stephen Amell always shares some stuff from the set and whatnot. But it seems like they're kind of ramping it up a little bit. It seems like they realize that they've finally got some legit competition on their hands, not just in the demo, but in the nerd realm itself. And that's the thing, too, is that this is really Arrow's true test. Because honestly, I don't think that Arrow's really had, in terms of its time slot and the night that it's on, a really com- you know solid competitor. Not a direct competitor, anyway. Right. Yeah. And and this, going head-to-head with it now, I mean, you have, what, now it's already three episodes into the new season? Yep. So, I mean, and Arrow's just getting ready for its first episode next week. So, I mean... Ah, it's going to be tough, man, because you already have those people. Blindspot already has three weeks worth of viewers, you know, that are there. So people are kind of be more entitled to say, you know what? I'm going to watch Blindspot live and I'll just DVR Arrow. Yeah, and, and the thing about that is is that, you know, live ratings are always counted better than live plus three, plus, plus five, plus seven. And it matters, and it matters to advertisers. And why should that matter to us? Because dollars and cents keep shows around, okay? Let's just face it. I mean, the ratings lead to that, and the ratings lead to dollars and cents. And if a show's making money, and it's profitable, and people are watching it, that's what makes it stick around. Now, I know that the expectations are probably a little lower at the CW than they are at NBC, but you have to think that Arrow is kind of a flagship show for the CW. Arrow's the one that brought us The Flash, that brought us Legends of Tomorrow and eventually Supergirl. You know, Arrow was the thing that started it all. That's why they call it the Arrowverse. So, 
if they don't hit the ground running, especially with this new, you know, this new kind of revamping of Team Arrow kind of thing, if that doesn't catch people's attention right away, that could be trouble, man. And I want to stay within the Arrowverse. Of course, you just mentioned Legends of Tomorrow. And Lance Henriksen, he has confirmed, of course, that he is playing Obsidian in this next season of Legends of Tomorrow. But he has confirmed Obsidian is Green Lantern's son. Now, you had an interesting idea or concept we mentioned off the air a couple nights ago, actually. Uh, So I want you to discuss that. Well, we were talking about this, and when we saw this story, and, and it, you know, there's been rumors that we were going to see Hal Jordan on Arrow or on Flash for a while because we've seen the Ferris Air stuff, we've seen the teases, but have you noticed that this Green Lantern Corps movie that Warner Brothers and DC were supposed to have, it was on the initial schedule, and now all of a sudden in Comic-Con it sort of disappeared into thin air, and now we're talking about Batman, a Batman movie and a Harley Quinn movie, and all of a sudden... Green Lantern's getting pushed into the corner. So what if they had a little meeting and decided, you know what, guys? Maybe this Green Lantern thing works better on television. Maybe we should just try it on TV. So what you're saying is TV is going to be the Patrick Swayze and pull it out of the corner. Pretty much. Exactly. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to be just like kind of what Marvel did with the Inhumans when they started working so well on S.H.I.E.L.D. and they went, you know what? You know that Inhumans movie? Let's not do that now. I'm gonna, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the dick. I'm gonna put a little pop in your balloon because Guggenheim did come out and say we don't have plans for Hal Jordan or Green Lantern to show up on TV. We don't have plans for that. But I, however, I love Guggenheim, but he says a lot of things. <laughs> that's true, and that's what I was about to get to. Is that this? You know, who knows what can happen? I think the Inhumans thing's a little bit different. Because Green Lantern is actually part of the Justice League, so you do have to have the, him as part of the Justice League. A part of the Justice, Justice League, League who is stuff. not in the Justice League movie and has odd. been noticeably absent in Justice League comics, at least Hal Jordan has. Because remember, Hal Jordan was off in space for most of the Justice League comics. He wasn't around. He came back and then, of course, entered Jessica Cruz and Forever Evil, and that was a little bit different. And, of course, they had Baz. But remember how many Green Lanterns there are. Right. So, and then, of course, the whole di- the whole TV universe not being connected, and now we saw that image that Amel teased about Deathstroke coming back to Arrow, maybe for episode 100, and we've got him in the DC uh, movie universe now. Who knows what's going to happen at this point? Right, and I think that when you see what's going to happen, I mean, remember, Green Lantern Corpse, there, there was a numerous amounts of Green Lanterns. Hell, Jordan might not even be in it. It could just right. be led by it could be led by Kyle Rayner and John Stewart. I would love to see Guy a John Gardner Stewart for that matter, or, and Guy yeah. Gardner definitely. So I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I mean, again, the thing is, is when with this, you know, they as you mentioned, they had you know the Ferris Air. They showed the airbase that's Ferris Air. They mentioned there was a pilot that disappeared. It's Hell, Jordan. So yep. you can only have. I know Guggenheim said. You know, we don't have any plans, but it's like you can only name drop and give a person blue balls until you actually can say, come out and say, yeah, we're bringing Green Lantern to the this small is screen. Like the biggest tease ever because you start with that. Now you do this whole thing with Obsidian. You're pushing, you're pushing the envelope here. Okay. You're, you're, you're pretty much, you're in one side of your mouth. You're saying that you're not going to do it and you're Harvey Dent. <laughs> and then Two-Face says, we're going to do it. We're going to bring him. If the coin says, head you says know, we bring him and tail says we don't. 
Kind you know what thing. this? You know what this reminds me of? If you ever, if people have ever seen The Wolf of Wall Street, there's a scene where Leonardo DiCaprio and Margot Robbie are in their daughter's room, and Leo's like hitting on her, and he's trying to sleep with her, and so she, he's like crawling towards her. And she puts her foot on his face, and she like puts him down on the ground, like his face buries his face into the floor with her foot. Uh, that's kind of like what CW is doing with Green Lantern. They're like, we're, they're having us crawl forward to them. We're like, yes, this is what we want. We've been waiting for this moment. We're so hard and we're so ready to go. And they just put the foot up and just put our face right to the car. Like, uh, uh-uh. uh. Well, here's the deal, man. They can't say they're going to do it because then nobody would shut up about it until it happened. Just like the super, <laughs> remember Superman was never going to be on Supergirl. Right. What happened? So, and I'm, and I'm not even going to go there with the Batman thing. Okay. We're not going there at all. I'm just saying that there's been a lot of times where Guggenheim and Berlanti and the, and the folks have said this wasn't going to happen. And it has because they can't, could you imagine if they had said last season, like mid season on Supergirl? Oh yeah, we'll get to Superman in season two. Nobody would have shut up about it until it happened. Of course we can't say anything. Well, I mean, really quickly before we move on to our third and final story, the thing with Supergirl, though, was if they had mentioned that Superman was going to be like, like we were actually going to see him like up close and personal, it would have overshadowed the whole Supergirl aspect because, again, you they wanted to get that female audience in there. So by saying, hey, we're just, Superman's going to be in here and you can see him up close and personal, here's who's playing him, it would have overshadowed the purpose of making a Supergirl show. Uh you know, but but going on to our final story, though, we're going into the, from the world of Superman to the world of No Man's Sky. And, well, let's just say No Man's Sky, since it announced way back that, hey, we know we're an indie game, but guess what? We're going to be having the full AAA price of $60, that which pissed a lot of people off. Now, James, they find themselves in the middle of an investigation. I mean, it looks like the Advertising Standards Authority in the UK, according to Polygon, has received several complaints about No Man's Sky's advertising. That is a quote. And they say that, you know, there's basically stuff that they said was going to be in the game that's not in the game. And there's been several examples of that that have been posted by users. Like we were talking about one off the air where two users were going to the same place and they were supposed to be able to meet up there and same system and... Neither one of them could see each other, and there's just so many different things. And there was another thing on here about uh, the ads had the graphics put at a level that can't actually be achieved on the game on any platform. So, I mean, this game's already got negative reviews for other reasons. And if I'm not mistaken, this game was also delayed several times. So I'm just going to come out and ask you, man, what, what is the deal here with Hello Games? The deal with Hello Games is, and this is a problem that video game culture has gotten itself into a lot of times. And Ubisoft is actually guilty of doing this too, where they hype things up so much to the point where people's expectations get so ridiculously high. And then when things aren't promised to them and they're in the, in the game that are supposed to be there, they get pissed. And then things like this obviously will happen. Now I will say this, the difference between Ubisoft and Hello Games is the fact that Hello Games, the the head developer for this, was like, oh yeah, you can do this, and you can do that, and you might be able to do this, and you can do this. And then when you get the game, it's like, I can't do any of these things. None of these things are in here. You know, when they showed the, the demo, what the world was supposed to look like, you have all these vast amounts of creatures and everything else. Then you actually, I had a friend of mine uh, play this, and 
there was literally like a few creatures and they're all pretty much the same fucking thing. And all the worlds look pretty much the same, just different colors and stuff like that. It just didn't feel as big when you're like, oh, you can go through this whole galaxy and explore stuff. And it's like, not really. You can kind of go through a few planets, but it's just not as fun. And it's it's, it's like, you know, uh, you're, you're just mining, you're building stuff. And it's like, eh, I don't care. I really don't. Part of it is is that I, I agree with you on the whole gamers' unrealistic expectations thing because let's face it, nobody has more unrealistic es- expectations than gamers. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. And but that's that's the job of the, of the video game companies to build it up to make you want to <laughs> buy it. That's kind of their job. But where does hype end and false advertising begin? I right. think that that's the that's the gray area here that we need to figure out. When does hype become false advertising? So I, I think is lawsuit wise, this is a difficult one because where is that line? I think it's it, here's how I'm gonna try to find that line. Hype to me is kind of like when somebody a company or a developer says, Oh, it's so awesome, it's the best game ever, da 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 uh you know this skin, we have this skin and this skin and such and such, and then it doesn't, but it's underwhelming, or it's the point where it's a good game, but it just doesn't, it's not up to your level of hype. Yeah. False advertising is where Hello Games is, where they say, you can do this, you can meet up with people in these worlds, you can do this and this and this, and then you can't, and not only that, but you, on top of it, charge a full $59.99, a triple A price for an indie game. That's the problem. And and when, you know, things like Steam and Valve and so like that have to offer refunds, like that's that's a big fucking problem. Right. And you rushed it to production and much like the Samsung Note 7, it's blowing up in their face. Because they yeah. already delayed it. They already delayed it way too many times. Way too many times. And people were clamoring for it, much like a bunch of games that have been waiting to come out. And then they were like, you know, we need to get this game out. Otherwise, people are just going to be too you know pissed and they're not going to care anymore. And it's and it's it, not only is it buggy, it's missing stuff entirely. It's like Apple. It's like, we have a brand new phone. State-of-the-art iPhone 7. Cool. Yeah, well, it's missing a headphone jack. What? That's a main premise of the phone. Like, well, yeah. how can, you know, it's like, we have this great game. Yeah, yay. But you can't do this, this, and this. Even though we said you more likely could, dot, 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 do this, this, and this. Yeah, and so, uh, we mean, don't recommend drilling into the top of your no, no. sky either, by the way. <laughs> we saw that. <laughs> yeah, or drilling into the top of your PlayStation or your Xbox. Yeah, or it's PC. like, really? Some people are so gullible. But anyway, I mean, yeah, you're totally right, man. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not going to sit here and say that this is false advertising. What I am going to say is, is that I think gaming companies need to be really careful. And and can we get can we just get it right? Can we get can we get a game out to market that actually has the things in it that says it's going to have in it and actually works the way it's supposed to? I mean, I know and there's that, always going to be bugs, but and it that, seems like there's so many huge bugs in these games when they come out. And not just that, but can we have games where? People can say it's going to have this in it, it's going to have this and this, and not have a paywall to get those things. Yes, yes. Go back to our freemium, game, freemium gaming and DLC episode where we talked about that because we dropped some knowledge on you, son. Yeah, yeah. I'm still pissed about that fucking Ar- Arkham Knight thing. I want to rant about that real quick since we're on the topic of paywalls. So this is something that things like Arkham Knight need and you know Rockstar shit like that need to learn. Don't have people buy a fucking 
Michael Keaton Batman skin and Batmobile that they really want to play with and they really want to play the game as, but only say, yeah, you can wear the Batman suit, but as far as the old 1980s Batmobile that you love and, and fucking covet and had a toy of and stuff like that, you can only use that on like the fucking Riddler racetracks. Go fuck yourself with a cactus. I mean, it's just, uh, I will never buy a cactus now, by the way. That's <laughs> we, <laughs> well, your son. Well, because your son will probably eat it. That's why. Well, he won't eat it. He'll push me into it, and we don't need that. <laughs> we don't need that. I'm already enough of a prick as it is. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we just established that, did we not? Yeah, pretty much. But that's going to do it for this week's edition of Nerd News. But coming up next, we have the showrunners and creators of NBC's Timeless coming on next. Stay tuned, more Down Nerdy is coming up next. This is comic book writer Brendan Fletcher, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. One of the shows we've been looking forward to the most this upcoming fall TV season is a new show called Timeless. It's going to be on NBC, premiering Monday, October the 3rd at 10 p.m. Right after The Voice, we have not just the co-creators, they also the executive producers and co-showrunners of the show, Eric Kripke and Sean Ryan. Guys, how you doing? Great. How are you, man? Very good, very good. We're doing awesome. As a matter of fact, we've seen, you know, both on TV and in movies that have dealt with the time travel aspect in some way before. So what do you think it is about Timeless that kind of sets the show apart from the norm? This is Eric speaking. Uh, We really want Timeless to kind of um, have a sense of fun and epic scope and adventure in the spirit of an early Spielberg movie or uh, a really great uh, Michael Crichton novel. You know, there was a time, you know, that, you know, when I grew up, um, time travel stories were fun. Uh, Back to the Future, Quantum Leap. uh, You know, there's a show uh, that was on when I was a kid called Voyagers that I was like in love with. And, you know, it wasn't about twisty, try to screw with your head, dark, dystopic, depressing crap, which is kind of what time travel's been for the last few years. And, and really, the, the goal of, of really making this show is, is just, you know, returning to when there's playfulness and humor and romance and, you know, great real characters and just, and just to make a kick-ass time travel adventure. Yeah, Mr. Sean, I'd, I'd add to that... Uh... The, the time travel aspect is, is certainly important on the show, but in many ways, it's just a vehicle that we use to tell a really cool historical action adventure show each week. Each each week's episode takes us to a different time, to a different place in, in uh, American or world history, uh, allows us the opportunity to put our characters smack dab in the middle of this sort of amazing historical epic. So in that sense, it's not about having a PhD in quantum physics to watch the show. It's it's, uh, it's about using uh, time travel as a vehicle and, and you know to allow us to tell these crazy, amazing stories each week that we want to tell. So when you guys are creating and writing down ideas for episodes, what's more difficult, deciding where you want to go or figuring out how the end of each trip will affect the crew member? I think the latter, uh, it's how these adventures emotionally affect our crew is I would say the thing that we probably spend 70% of the room time on Um, because look, if you're you're doing these shows well, uh, especially in genre storytelling, the weekly story 
uh, is only a metaphor to illuminate what's going on inside your characters. You know, when I came up, uh, I came up sort of learning at the feet of a lot of the X-Files guys and, you know, and Sean worked for Joss Whedon uh, in one of his first jobs. And, and, and those, those guys were all masters at making the episodic story only serve to reflect your character. And in Supernatural, by the way, that's a lesson that we learned early and then stuck to it, which is um, it's always smart to, in Supernatural's case, come up with the monster last, and it's smart in this case to come up with the time period last. Once you've really found that, you know, here's a point where there's got to be some incredible betrayal between your characters. And so what's the best historical period that reflects all the lies they're keeping from each other, for instance? And then we all look at each other and we say, well, Watergate is the best way to examine that story. So that, it's a way to make it all feel really locked into character, which is really, after all, all television really is. Any show, genre, cop show, doctor show, you name it, it only succeeds or fails based on how strongly people connect to the characters. So everything we do is in service of them. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we loved about the show was the chemistry between Lucy, Wyatt, and Rufus. So what do you think it is about their group dynamic that works so well? There are three very distinct different uh, people. You know, Lucy is our plucky historian who has read and taught about these great adventures of history, but has never really gone on one of her own. Uh, then you have Wyatt, who's the professional soldier, and, and Rufus, who's the brilliant uh, engineer uh, who works for the company that made the time machine. You have three very, very different people. So I'd like to think that, you know, as writers, we came up with three um, pretty unique, different, cool individual characters. But I really do have to give credit to the actors themselves, mm -hmm. um, Abigail Spencer and, and, and Matt Lanter and Malcolm Barrett. Uh, the three of them just embody these characters so quickly and and they made it a priority to to really you know have that chemistry between each other they they spent a lot of time together before shooting they were clients with each other and they were just determined to 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 make it work the three of them and and you know that's something that no matter how hard you work as a writer as a showrunner you just don't know if you're going to get from your actors you don't know if if what you're imagining on on paper is going to come true on on screen and we've been extraordinarily fortunate because all three of them are, are are truly wonderful actors and there's something about them being together that that, that brings out the best in their work and 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 and, and makes them even better and and, and and chemistry is a great word and and episode two which you guys haven't had the chance to see yet um that chemistry only gets bigger and better it's 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 really a joy and a relief, frankly, yeah. <laughs> when you're a showrunner, uh, to start seeing that chemistry develop on screen. Because, you know, as, as much as we think our stories are the backbone uh, of the show, I truly believe that a lot of what makes a TV show succeed or fail is simply the viewers want to watch these characters. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think we're uh, off to a good first step or two with uh, these three amazing actors. Oh, absolutely. And of course, in the first episode, we see how a decade like the 1930s places certain social hurdles and from a guy like Rufus. So as the show progresses, will we see different eras have kind of near similar effects on other team members? 
Well, we'll certainly see our characters deal with the individual quirks of, of particular points uh, in history. And, you know, Rufus, who's African-American, um, but the only person trained to fly the time machine, so he's forced to go back to a number of eras that, that may not be great for him. Lucy um, is a woman, and, and listen, not every, uh, not every era uh, was, was great uh, for women. And then there will be certain things that they venture back into that, that, that won't be great for Wyatt. And, and so, th so that helps bring, you know, that, that helps bring great drama to, to the forefront. And we, we do want to lean into what are the social mores and, and political mores of these various times. And then, and then you know, they're, they're constantly trying to maintain the past so that the present doesn't change much. And, you know, without giving away too much, you know, in the pilot episode, something happens that, that sort of deeply affects um, the present for one of our characters, and 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 it won't always be such a big uh, change up like that every episode. But but we will be dealing with you know what our characters do in the past does sometimes in very meaningful way alter their life as they know it in the present. Absolutely. We're talking to Eric Kripke and Sean Ryan, the creators of Timeless on NBC, which is going to premiere Monday, October the 3rd at 10 o'clock on NBC. Now, guys, Goran Viznik plays a villain named Garcia Flynn, but we've seen in some of the promos and the trailers for the show and stuff like that, it might not actually be that simple. So talk about his character a little bit and how quickly we will see his true motives revealed. Well, we'll certainly learn more about Garcia Flynn, the character played by Goran, um, as... Um, episodes progress. I mean, I, I think you're probably going to learn about him at a fairly healthy pace. I think Sean and I share the same story philosophy to, um, you know, move the football forward in a way that is satisfying to the audience. I, you know, look, a show like this, of course, is going to have mystery and mythology, but I'm not a fan of sort of that endless tease storytelling where it like stretches out over multiple seasons. Um, and I don't think audiences, frankly, are either. So answers are coming, and they're coming, I think, probably, you know, a little faster than people are, will think um, they're coming. And, and the reality is, is, you know, there's a lot more to Garcia Flynn than meets the eye. And um, that's not to say that what he's doing isn't dangerous, but, you know, there's elements and dimensions to him that complicate what he's up to. And, and, you know, what we always say here is any good villain is the hero of their own story. And he's certainly the hero of his. And once he starts revealing a little more of his secrets, uh, we might not agree with what he's doing, but our hope is, is that the audience will understand why he's doing it, um, which will lead to a much more fraught and difficult and complicated relationship between him and our heroes. Now, a lot of this, uh, as Sean said before, uh, you know, you look, you could write the shit out of anything, but a lot of this just comes down to the actor. And, and Goran, who plays this part with such sensitivity and complexity that it's funny because if, if you look at the pilot, um, if you look at just the dialogue on the page, uh, and you read that, you would you would read it and you'd say, oh, that guy, that guy's the villain, right? Mm -hmm. um, but every person who watches the pilot and sees Goran play those lines says, oh, there's something more going on with that guy. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep, that's the point, yep. Yep. 
and, and, and that's entirely due to, you know, his eyes and his soulfulness and, and sort of the beautiful nuanced performance that, that he brings. And that's, for the record, that's what he was interested in. I mean, he sat down to meet with us and we give him a lot of credit because that's a, that's a big leap of faith to sign on to a series for basically one scene that you're in. And the thing he was most interested in, and I think the thing that attracted him to the part ultimately, is the first thing we said to him is, we said, oh, no, 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 Gar you know, we said Garcia's not the bad guy. Garcia is an antagonist to your heroes, but he's got his own story going on, and, and we're really going to unveil it. Exactly. We can't wait to see how that's going to be unveiled. So here's a question for you guys. If you had a vehicle that could travel through time, what would it be and what would you name it? <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, a lot of people have asked us like a lot of time travel questions, but you've never asked us. Not that one. But not that one. <laughs> oh, there you All go. Right. <laughs> First time for everything. Here we go. Kudos to you. All right, Sean. What you want to uh, I think I would call mine the Sean Mobile. <laughs> it, it would be some sort of, you know, what I liked about Back to the Future was that he could drive the time machine around. Yeah. And, uh, and so I would want something with wheels so that not only could I go back in time, but I could, uh, around. yeah, but, it, but mine would have shape shifting technology. Oh, you know, he, had to he had to hide the DeLorean. Oh, uh, there we go. I would want one that could morph into a vehicle of the time so that I could freely, freely drive around and uh, check things out. It goes back to the uh, times. Why is there a spoiler coming out of the horse? <laughs> <laughs> I would make a McLaren into a time machine. That would be my move. <laughs> and, uh, and I would call that some of this the silver bullet. Nice. <laughs> some classics are too good just not to have happen again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, it, since you guys premiere right after The Voice on NBC, you know, it got me to thinking, you know, with the whole time travel thing, if you could go back in time to see one musical act or band in concert, who would it be? This is Eric. Uh, there is zero question that it would be Led Zeppelin. Um, nice. I, uh, nice. To say that uh, I'm obsessed with that band is a gross understatement. And, um, I'd have given anything to see them. I'll, I'll tell you what I would do, because here's the thing. Uh, they were, when that time they were going to reunite in England, I had a buddy call me and he said, hey man, if you could hop on a plane right now, I could get you a ticket to that show. And, but I had, I would have had to have leave, left for England within 24 hours. And, and I was in the middle of running Supernatural at the time and you're slammed with scripts. And, and I said to my friend, I'm like, look, man, if they're going to get together for a reunion now, like they're definitely going to go on a tour. <laughs> you know, they're going to tour the States. Like I'm going to have my shot. So I, you know what? I think it's a pass. I would go back to that moment and I would say, you idiot, hop on a plane and go to England. So, <laughs> Yeah, I I would go probably and see some of the early Beatles shows in Germany that they did before they became famous. Yeah, be being at uh, the Ed Sullivan show, see them perform live in America. That would be cool too. Yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah, I'd be one of the screaming girls at the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> 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 oh, 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 oh. He'd be the only person screaming for Ringo. 
<laughs> and guys, before we get you out of here, prior to time, which you guys kind of mentioned us a little bit earlier, uh, you know, you spent time working on other TV projects, including shows like Angel, Revolution, The Shield, and Supernatural, of course. So what are some things you've learned on those sets that will always stick with you going forward? Well, when I worked on Angel, you know, which, you know, Joss Whedon show, obviously, um, and, and Eric sort of referenced a little bit of this earlier, but the lesson that I always learned was, I, I remember at that time, Joss had Buffy and Angel, so he was really bouncing back between both shows. He would direct on both shows, so there'd be large chunks of time that, that Joss wasn't there because he was working on, on either the other show or he was in the director's chair. And so we would do a lot of work in the writer's room, and, and then he would get an hour and he'd come and sort of pitch what we'd had. And I recall very distinctly working very hard on one episode. I was trying very hard to impress. Um, and we had broken uh, this episode. I felt really strong because Joss was always a tough judge. I was like, Joss is going to love this story. You know, this, this is the one. You know, this is good. You know, you know he's going to be forced to acknowledge our brilliance here. And it's all good. And then he showed up. It was like 6 o'clock. And we pitched the story. And he sort of uh, looks at us and he's like, you know, it's not bad, but really it's all moves. Um, it's not really anything emotionally that's clicking for our characters. It's all just moves. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, oh, yeah, there are some sort of cool plot things here, but it's not really furthering or deepening our, our characters' emotional lives. And, and from that point forward I started viewing stories differently and on um, the shield you know when, when I worked at Nash Bridges for instance we always came up with the plot first and then after Angel when I started doing the shield I always decided what the character's emotional journey was going to be and then figured out what was the best plot to tell the story so like Eric was talking about earlier you know that's something that I've come to because of a lesson I learned from Joss Whedon yeah it's so funny that um even though I don't know Joss and, and uh, have never, certainly never worked with him, um, a, a lesson I learned early on in Supernatural came from an interview I read with Joss. Turns out, whether he, liked, he knew it or not, Joss was the grandfather of both of our careers, apparently. But he, he gave an interview talking about Buffy, that I was, I was in the middle of the first season of Supernatural, and it was really, you know, and I was young, and we had very, like, monstery stories on that show and it was always very what's the monster of the week and how do these characters fight it and 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 then you know the monster tries to attack them and then there's like life or death stakes and are they going to survive then i read an interview that he gave talking about buffy and and i'm paraphrasing the quote but the quote was he said you know the episodes where buffy was in peril were never as interesting as the episodes where buffy was in pain and that really landed with me uh, and with, you know, Bob Singer, my co-showrunner on Supernatural. And, you know, we really took a major left turn at that point on Supernatural because the truth is when you have leads of the show, the audience consciously or subconsciously knows that those characters aren't really ever going to die. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And God knows on Supernatural, I've killed each main character five times now and they've always come back to life. But yeah, but 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 rarely, and they kind of know, uh, you know, especially frankly on a show like Timeless, when there's you know three leads, you, 
the odds of us actually killing them and that happening for, happening for real are slim. But what you can do, you know, life or death stakes ring a little false, um, but emotional stakes ring really true. And and if a character is going to go through an experience that is going to screw them up so badly that they're going to carry that for the remainder of the series, and that's a character that your audience really cares about and, and doesn't want your character to be that screwed up, um, that's something that you really can play, and that's suspense that the audience can actually really feel. And it's, it has the double purpose of it lets you understand more of who your characters are and how to connect with them. So, yeah, I guess I'm saying the same, Sean and I, I think, learned the same lesson in very different ways, which is um, you really want your plot to come last. Um, and, and you really want your characters and the pain you put them through to, to come first. Another quote of, uh, I, I wrote a screenplay early in my career for Sam Raimi, um, and Sam said something to me that stuck with me forever, which is, um, you know, I was talking about his job and how, how he viewed his job. And he said, he said, look, my job basically is to come up with characters you love and then torture them. And I think that's as good a job description of what we do as, as anything I've ever heard. And there's so much going on in the show, guys. You've got to watch Timeless. It's going to be Monday, October the 3rd on NBC right after The Voice. You're going to love it. And the, the little stinger that they were talking about at the end of the show, what happens to one of the characters, one of the biggest OMG moments I think we've had so far checking out things this fall season. It's Eric Kripke and Sean Ryan, creators of Timeless on NBC. Thanks for taking a few minutes with us, guys. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, guys. You know, James, it's always fun talking to showrunners and creators of a show that is about a certain genre, a certain type, element of fantasy, if you will, but they say, you know what, we're going to do things differently. We're not going to do things the way they have been recently. You know, we want to make this show different, and they succeeded with Timeless. You know, it's funny because when you do anything time travel related, I think that the temptation is to make it an homage to something. You know, Right. There have been some good time travel shows, but I think that they hit the nail right on the head early on when they were talking. They're saying, you know, time travel used to be fun, and, and you do get that, absolutely get that. With Timeless, I mean, there's obviously some peril there, and there's and there's plenty of action, but, I mean, they bring the fun aspect back to time travel, even though there are hurdles to get over, so if you're going into this thinking, or if you've seen a couple trailers thinking, ah, really, another time travel show? No. This is not another time travel show. This is a show that actually brings a unique take, and there's a lot more going on, too, than just time travel that we can't even spoil right now. No, and of course, we got to see the first episode early, and it's just... It's nice to see a show about time travel where they people go actually go in time and actually have that like look of awe. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. like that look of wonder. And it's not like, oh, we gotta go here to make sure that nothing bad happens. It's like, and they're all serious. It's like, you know, we see Lucy when she's first. They say time travel exists, and she actually has a real, you know, thing of like, oh my god, like you know, but more of like a horror kind of a thing. Like mm-hmm. this exists, you know, kind of stuff, and and. And it's just great, again, to see them enter a certain era or go to different places and just have that certain shock and awe, especially with what the first episode is about. Mm-hmm. You get that sense of, wow. Like, even when we were sitting there in the way with the opening scene, we are just sitting there like, wow, that, that looks pretty interesting. Yeah, and your mind can't help but go, could you imagine if you were looking at that right now? Kind of I thing? know! And, and one of the things I love, too, is that 
we don't have to wait to get the depth for each character. They gave us, for Wyatt, for Lucy, and for Rufus, so much depth about their character to make you care about them in the first episode, which not a lot of shows do, especially when you've got a small ensemble of main characters like that. They make you care about not just them, but like I said, the villain, Garcia. I mean, you start really, you really think about him and what his motives really are, and, and there's just so much to think about that really has nothing to do with time travel too which i loved you gotta love you know i put this in kind of parentheses because of the show antagonists yeah. you know bad guys you know that make you pull out the whiteboard and make you you know put strings and draw you know arcs and like okay what could happen if this is messed mm-hmm. up what could happen if this or what does this mean what does this phrase mean or whatever like you know you gotta love shows that like make you not just sit there and be like, okay, he's definitely just a bad guy or she's just a bad person or whomever. It's more like I love villains that make you think like, what are their motives? Like, why are they doing this? And what could be the reason? And could they be on the, you know, on the opposite side and be portrayed as something that they're not, you know? And it's just, it brings that kind of interesting thing. I think it's something we're seeing a lot of television. Yeah, if you thought Biff becoming a millionaire was a tangent in a timeline, wait till you see Timeless Monday, October the 3rd on NBC at 10 o'clock because there is a tangent, all right, and uh, it's a big one. Yeah, man, it's, it's great. Again, it's, it's a interesting show, and it's just a fun, fun time. But again, thanks to Eric Kripke and Sean Ryan coming on talking about Timeless on NBC. Again, be sure to hit it up. It comes on after The Voice on October the 3rd at 10 p.m. But that's going to do it for us here at the Down Nerdy Podcast. But hey... For more of us, we're online, social media, facebook.com slash downnerdy. We're also on Twitter at downnerdy757. We're also on Twitter, James and I. I'm at Merck with one arm, and James, tell them where they can find you. I'm at James Ace Witham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. If you want to find out all of our hijinks, shenanigans, and general other episodes of the show, you can always go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Read the other comic book reviews we've got up there, what else I'm reading, what else Nick is reading. Plus, go to the This Week section. You can find out all about what we talked about on the show, chances to pre-order stuff at our Amazon store, all of that up at downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, pass safe comic book reading, always bag and board your comics, and we'll see you wherever in time.